Welcome to Career in Ruins, where at some point we will work out how to appropriately start a podcast. <laughs> Hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, what we got this week? This week we've got a range of interesting topics. We're going to be talking about orienteering, we're going to be talking about Build-A-Bear, we're going to be talking about anthropology, and we've got a fantastic interview with Steve Fisher talking a little bit about how he got into the discipline, alternative routes into archaeology, and some of the interesting things he gets up to now. Ace? So, Lawrence, what have you been up to this week? This week I have been finishing a season around a new sport and interest that I've got. Quidditch? Not Quidditch. <laughs> no, or Tiddlywinks. No. Um, no, in the last year I've got into orienteering. Okay. So two of my favourite things, running and map reading. I'm yeah. Big, big fan of those. Does sound like but you. I'm not trying to um, <laughs> scoff that I'm trying to be uh, I'm big on the exercise of uh, enjoying running or anything. But what I've loved in the last few months is running around sites that I've never been to before and just stumbling across archaeology. And this, the, the whole discipline of orienteering as a sport, they go around mapping areas, mm. a bit like archaeologists. Like My job in the New Forest National Park is to map archaeology. And you've got this whole sport that people are going around, they've got mappers that use bespoke mapping software, and they go around, they map an urban area or a, a top of a hill or something like this. And they're just mapping archaeology willy-nilly without really considering it. It's just a bank or an earthwork or something like that. So you're going to have to excuse my ignorance here a little bit, Lawrence. Uh, when I when I hear the term orienteering, I kind of imagine Duke of Edinburgh awards and <laughs> hiking around the landscape with big backpacks. But are you trying to tell me this is a sport or, <laughs> it's, or I've completely misunderstood? I know, right. Well, this is exactly what I thought. Um, when I was first invited to take part, I was like, this is going to be interesting. But I love it. And it's, it's not. It's, it's, it's a running activity where mm. you have to get from A, B, C, D, and there are scoring events or line events and all these other things. I won't go into the minutiae. But the thing is, you're, going, you're running about 10 kilometres across quite a large area of land, and with, you have an hour to get, cover as much as you can. But... In the last two or three months, I've been going to places across southern England um, and they've been urban settings or rural settings, but I've stumbled across archaeology last thing. It's fantastic because <laughs> I say these mappers are just mapping these archaeological sites every year to update their records. And I'm wondering if it's an untapped archaeological source, but the best bit is just stumbling over, like, running through Southampton and finding Second World War building remains, you know, just counting them off, and then there's a little um, little place to dip your dibber, and then you carry on. Um, and then, yeah, loads of other different things. So the, the places you're doing these events and doing these 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 runs, do they use the, the historic monuments and the archaeology as a, as a wayfinder in the landscape? Is that somewhere you would look for? Or Absolutely. Is it... So this Saturday just gone, for example, I was at Chill Hill, which is just west of Avebury. Oh, OK. So proper Wiltshire, beautiful yeah, hills. It's a huge historic landscape up there. Anyway. Windy as anything. But um, we're running around and they've mapped every single rampart of this beautiful Iron Age hill fort on top of the hill. So you have to count, right, I've run over one, I've run over two, I've got to go left, and then there's a pit. Oh, this pit is a flint, flint, flint mine. <laughs> so, That's unreal. And then I'm going to wander a bit further down the road, and oh, there's a pond barrow. And at the top of the other hill, there's a lovely monument. Oh, there's a, there's a chalk 
horse. Oh, there's a 1990, oh, probably not 1990s, but there, <laughs> there's a modern crop mark that someone's put in for, oh, for giggles. Wow. But it's brilliant. I was just running around this this prehistoric landscape, effectively, with the odd Second World War installation. Or It's brilliant. I've got to admit, you've, you've tried to sell orienteering to me in the past, and I, I've always kind of, much like you did, possibly scoffed at the idea of <laughs> um, a very nerdy run pursuit in the countryside. But I think you've sold it to me now. I think I'm, I'm there. I'm I you. think for all those archaeologists that enjoy a run, and uh, want to see a few new sites that perhaps they wouldn't normally go to, or anyone else, I should say, not just archaeologists. It's it's a pretty cool sport. But anyway, I've finished nerding out. You hit me with your thoughts. <laughs> oh, so this week, this has been a busy week, so it was my daughter's birthday this week. Oh, yeah. So I Happy found, birthday, Elsie. Yeah. So I found myself in Build-A-Bear, which is <laughs> oh. a, it, on the spectrum of a special place reserved in hell and something absolutely brilliant. It kind of crosses both because the, the joy it brings to kids is unreal, but the horror it brings to parents is it's like yin and yang. Of, other uh, places between hell and... Uh, <laughs> other stores based between hell and glory are available. But no, it's certainly... It, it's, it's a place of extremes, I'll say that. And, and while I was in there, there's, there's a bit of queuing and various things go on. And my mind started to wander. And as you know, I was kind of texting you while I was there, various, various critiques. Yeah, telling you how much yeah. I was enjoying it. And it it started to remind me of a paper I'd read once. And archaeologists, anthropologists, anyone really that works in academia can be quite nerdy people, as, as you'll know from our podcast so far. Um, quite rightly so as well. And we tend to have favourite papers and favourite things that we read. And one of my all-time favourite papers is a paper called Body Rituals Among the Nasi Rima. Um, by a chap right. called Horace Miller. Rolls off the tongue. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one, but if you're at all interested in human beings and how people study them, it's, a, it's an essential read. It's an amazing paper. It's basically a parody of anthropology and language we use to describe other peoples, other tribes, other, other communities, but also a bit of a parody of modern American ritual culture. So it's, it's written in the, in the prose of a detached archaeologist or an anthropologist, but it's focusing on mundane tasks like cleaning your teeth or going to the doctor or the dentist. So it's an incredible read, and I would recommend it to anyone that that, that I talk to, really. <laughs> um, but I started to think about that paper while I was in Bilderberg, and my mind was wandering. And I started to witness these rituals. But if you were an alien anthropologist and you, you kind of beamed <laughs> down into Bilderberg, how would you describe the, the rituals you could see? And it was, <laughs> it was enlightening to kind of talk through it in, those, in the kind of detached terms we're very used to using. Um, and, I mean, it began with my, my daughters going to a big pile of... Um, kind of flaccid carcasses of teddy bears <laughs> that are just kind of stacked up ab abstractly in the corner and they selected the one that they wanted to give life to and, and breathe life into. And I, I thought it would kind of, the symbolism and ritual would stop there, but no, the, the, the member of staff, she was fantastic. She had them do a little dance to bring some life into the, into the teddy bear. Sounds like ritual um, to me. It, massively so. And then it, it, it got even even better. She, she pulled out a handful of hearts, small, soft hearts. <laughs> and had my kids kiss the hearts what, to give not, life to them. Not made out not, of... Not, um, not human hearts. Small fabric hearts. Various colours. And they had to pick a heart and they had to kiss it to give it some life. Mm -hmm. And then the heart was placed inside the bear before the bear was impaled on a, uh, an iron pipe. Which and part stuffed, of the, Through the nose? Um, Egyptian style? Through a small hole in the back. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of... It, again, it was this really violent ritual around stuffing this teddy bear. And my kids were 
loving it, <laughs> seeing this bear come to life. Um, and it got stitched up, sewn up at the back. And you can imagine a, a kind of Egyptian burial ritual following the same process. And the, then it was given to my, my, my daughters and they had to go and clean it and wash it and blow dry it and dress it. And again, it was all steeped in this continuous ritual of birth <laughs> oh, to the point of actually printing a birth certificate for this bear. And I, I, I was just brilliantly baffled by the whole process but I throughout it I was kind of narrating it to Lawrence and other people via WhatsApp <laughs> of this kind of this alien anthropologist watching this bizarre human birth or regeneration ritual around these these um animalistic tokens God. It, it was just bizarre but it was it was it was fun and that certainly got me through the day ah oh, sounds uh, <laughs> that's brilliant I love that that's genius I'm never gonna look at build a bear the same way again I just if you walk past it or you, you, you have to go in there and spend the spend the money on it, you, the money's well spent because you're buying a ritual, you're buying a, <laughs> you're buying a performance, and a performance you can play a part in, and, and they got so much joy out of it. I can't, I can't be too cynical about the process. Oh, I, I know I started quite great. cynically, but oh. it, it, was, it was a great day out. Nice. Oh, that sounds good fun. So tell me, Lawrence, let's move on. Put Build-A-Bear behind us. <laughs> Leave it firmly in the past for another year. Tell me a bit more about your interview. This week, I caught up with Steve Fisher, who is a archaeologist, historian, and generally good bloke. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with him for a number of years, but he, I just caught up with him and found a bit about, found out a bit about how he got involved with archaeology. He took a slightly different route to tr- the traditional route that perhaps you and I have taken mm. in terms of doing a degree in archaeology, in terms of carrying on further studies, but um, I. He's equally as equivalent to us in terms of what he's delivered and what he's he's worked on in the past. So that was really interesting. And then um, just a bit more about his interests, the work he's done, and uh, where he's going to go on his time his time travel trip. Excellent. I look forward to it. Let's have a listen. to the um, Careers in Ruins podcast. <laughs> um, I'm here today with Stephen Fisher, or Steve Fisher. Um, we've known each other six and a half, seven years now. When's the first time we met? It was on site at Ibsley, wasn't it? Um, looking at the bunkers That's there. it, you were doing some work for James. I was doing the New Forest Remembers uh, World War II death space assessment, That's it. I think, at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and so this was a, a useful visit for me to see some of the sites that weren't immediately obvious and I think you'd not long started. That's right, yeah. So mm. yeah, so back in 2012? It must have been about then, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. And a blossoming friendship has grown ever since. <laughs> you came to my wedding. I did, which was <laughs> awesome. Um, but um, a bit of background about the podcast, obviously we, we've got, I've got a few questions, set questions I'd like to ask you mm-hmm. um, going forwards, but uh, I wonder if you could start off by giving us a bit of a background as to how you are in the position you're in today, you, how you got into heritage, how you got into archaeology, have you always been an archaeologist or a heritage um, expert? Um, let us know. I'm, I'm one of those irritating people that has absolutely no qualifications in the subject that is my career. <laughs> right. Um, I grew up uh, in my early childhood in Germany because my father worked out there for a company called NAFI which is, stands for Navy, Army, Air Force Institutes, and they supplied all of the facilities on British Army bases. Mm. 
uh, and Nafi was basically the superstore for the, the basis. And he was a district manager, so he travelled all around the, the various Nafi stores in Germany. So I spent most of my early childhood in Germany attending a, a British forces school okay. on an army barracks. And behind that, um, behind the playground, you'd always have all of the armoured cars all lined up. And I think growing up with such military surroundings gave me a very early interest in military history. Mm -hmm. When I was nine, uh, we moved back to England and uh, I grew up on Countess Road in Amesbury in Wiltshire and my bedroom window looks out onto a ridge about a mile away called Kingbarrow Ridge. Okay. I'm sure you're familiar with Yes, yeah. Walk up, famous ridge, <laughs> walk up to that ridge and you look down Stonehenge on the other side. So I, I credit that with my interest in prehistory. <laughs> Plus you have Lark Hill That's it. Royal Artillery just up the road. It's the so. perfect amalgamation of uh, the most pristine <laughs> prehistoric landscape versus military training. Exactly, and, uh, yes. And, uh, um, so, uh, yes, I think these are probably the reasons why my main areas of interest in history are prehistory and mm -hmm. military history. Okay. Um, but I didn't study them uh, at uh, college, uh, sorry, at um, university. Mm -hmm. uh, I did psychology instead, um, which was another subject I had interest in. But by the time I graduated, I had absolutely no interest in it at all. I, mm -hmm. I was thoroughly fed up with the subject. Um, and then a few years after that, I moved to Japan to teach English. And it was when I came back from Japan with my then girlfriend, Caroline, now my wife, mm -hmm. um, we really weren't sure what we were going to do with our lives. We'd taught English for four years and we really had no expectation of what we were going to do once we got back to England. We moved and stayed for a short while with my parents mm -hmm. back in Countess Road. And it was while we were taking one of our evening walks up to Darrington Walls, mm -hmm. which again is just up the road from where I grew up, that we bumped into some archaeologists who were quite clearly laying out a, a survey area and we got chatting to them and asked if we could volunteer for their forthcoming dig. Uh -huh. And that was the Stonehenge Riverside project. Oh, this project I know well, yeah. yes. And mm. so uh, we volunteered on that project um, for four weeks, started off with test pitting, and then Caroline carried on doing more excavations. She was very lucky. She was able to excavate a Bronze Age burial urn from the Cuckoo Stone. Oh, wow. um, so she had a great time. So what year was this? Because I know obviously there's the ski, the, the Stonehenge Riverside project started 2005? Yes, 2004? this was 2007. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, well, I very quickly drifted into giving guided tours because I knew the area so well. And there were lots of visitors to the immediate area because it's Woodhenge and Darrington Walls. So I ended up doing that. And it was when the project came to an end, or, or that season came to an end after four weeks, that the National Trust, who own all of that land, asked if we would be interested in carrying on volunteering for them ah. full time. Uh, and this was a fantastic opportunity, obviously. And also it meant we could live in the National Trust cottage on Kingbarrow Ridge, which got me out of my parents' house. Um, Always a bonus. Yes. So we took them up on that and moved into Kingbarrow Cottages. And um, the placements are for six months, but we ended up staying for a year and a half. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> um, pretty good glowing, glowing indictment of, uh, yeah. of working for the National uh, Trust there. Right? Well, it wasn't working. It was full-time volunteering, but we got the free accommodation. Mm -hmm. and we'd saved up enough money living in Japan to, to be able to survive. Um, and so that was our training, that was our, our background in historical research, archaeological survey, um, and 
doing this this job basically. Mm. And um, after a year and a half, Caroline got a job with a group called the Hampshire and White Trust for Maritime Archaeology, mm -hmm. now the Maritime Archaeology Trust in Southampton. And we moved down to Southampton. I spent a year as a ranger for the Forestry Commission in the New Forest, and then I got a job with Maritime Archaeology Trust as well. And uh, that's pretty much been it ever since. So that was 2010 okay. I started working for them. And then after that, I did contracts for the uh, Maritime Archaeology Trust. We had the tender to do the desk space assessment for the New Forest Remembers project. And um, I did a secondment to the National Park Authority. And now I've been doing freelance work for you ever since, alongside lots of other work that I do in yeah. historical research and other bits and bobs that come up. So that, that I mean, that meeting, that chance meeting with archaeologists, can you remember who it was that you met? Out no, I can't. It might have been Josh. Josh Pollard. It might have been Josh mm. Pollard. Mm. Um, and maybe Kate? Kate Willem. Yeah. Maybe. Mm. But I genuinely can't remember. I, I think it was them, but I'm not 100% sure. So that, that, that chance meeting, friendly encounter mm. and... Um, and I guess something that's quite common, I think, in archaeology, that openness to engage wider audiences yes. and communities with their local heritage and their archaeology. I mean, that was a pretty big springboard for you going forward. So it was, it was very lovely. lucky. I mean, we took the, the evening walks, again, to escape my parents. But, um, oh, your poor parents. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love them, really. But uh, it, was, yeah, it was a nice opportunity to go for a stroll in the evening and literally down to Walls and Woodhenges just up the road. But it was by chance that we bumped into the archaeologists. But it was their, their passion for archaeology and the fact that they were so willing to have volunteers. You know, they'd never met us. They had no idea of our skills. Um, and our knowledge for the area, but you know the whole project, the Stonehenge Riverside project, and Mike Parker Pearson have always been very open to working with locals and telling them all about the work that they've been doing. So it's a fantastic initial project mm. to work on, and I think working on a project like that guides how you then conduct the rest of your career. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more because, and yeah, my first experience with it, along with a few other bits before that, was working on that yeah, project as well. Yeah, it was a big project to be involved in. Mm. And again, mm. I worked in it in 2008, uh, and that was a fantastic experience, and I've been back whenever I get the chance. Well, I think I first met you without realising mm. in 2008. I think I, we did, yeah. I pinched a uh, high-vis jacket and yes. you were desperate to get it back off me. <laughs> yeah. We had strict <laughs> orders to keep tabs on yeah. all of the high-vis i still got it in my cupboard at home. I've got two. got <laughs> two? <laughs> no, I don't feel so bad. Yeah, that's great. But, um, so more recently, obviously you, meant, you mentioned you work with Maritime Archaeology Trust, um, but certainly I know you as a pretty avid historian um, looking at military history, First World War, Second World War in particular, and that maritime link through the Maritime Archaeology Trust. And um, you mentioned the link to your father working for NAFI, um, which coincidentally is that where the name comes from, if you're heading to the NAFI? Yes, oh, yeah, that's exactly that. where it comes from. NAFI, they ran um, recreational facilities on base, uh, canteens, mm. shops, that sort of that. thing. That's so. interesting. Oh, sorry, I digress, but um, <laughs> obviously this, you've now got quite a deep passion, I think that's fair to say, mm. for um, maritime archaeology and history, but certainly conflict um, yes. history. Um, is that in, much like 
as you just described, has that been self-driven? Where's that interest come from? The interest, has, like I said, come from childhood and um, growing up in Germany in that uh, you know, 1980s mm-hmm. period and, and attending a school on the British Forces base and regularly going on to the base for doctor's appointments, dental things, you know, just about every social occasion was conducted on the base. So um, that there's always stimulated an interest. And then having it on your doorstep when I was living in, um, in Amesbury, mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole World Heritage site of Stonehenge was my kind of playground growing up, it was my back garden almost, it literally did just extend off of the actual back garden and that went all the way up to Lark Hill, there's tanks constantly mm-hmm. around there and so that's always been an interest and I think certainly within the last 10 years I've been very lucky that it's become my main line of work and that started with a few small projects I did with Maritime Archaeology Trust looking at land and craft. Mm-hmm. And then doing the death-based assessment for the New Forest Remembers project and recording and assessing the significance of all of the military history within the entire National Park Mm -hmm. and, in fact, beyond the boundaries of the National Park. That was a a fantastic opportunity and, at the same time, a learning experience. For those that aren't aware of the history there and what... in a nutshell, what sort, uh, what broad-ranging sites, sort of sites, were you identifying? The, the New Forest is is very special because it has representative archaeological remains of military installations from all periods of the war. Mm-hmm. So you go from everything from the defences, the emergency defences thrown up um, in the expectation of a German invasion, mm-hmm. right through to uh, operations in Europe at the end of the war and mm-hmm. supporting those operations, especially, of course, D-Day. There's lots of camps that were in the woods and then embarkation areas. And the New Forest as a whole was one of the primary embarkation zones okay. for the troops, primarily for uh, Gold Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also other elements, there were training facilities in the New Forest for troops that were going out to the Far East. Uh, and there's airfields that were used for a variety of purposes, fighter defence of the UK, and then um, operations against Europe again, and then transport command flying routes out to the Far East. So there, there is literally just a, a bit of everything mm. here, um, which is fantastic because that's that's a unique resource. And although most of it is gone, the archaeological potential is still quite high mm. because this is an area that hasn't been heavily... Uh, uh, built over. Mm. I think one of the favourite bits I think you worked on as part of that project was the Grand Slam uh, mm. work up in uh, Ashley Walks and as I understand it, biggest, biggest bomb we ever dropped on ourselves? Uh, yeah, I can't think of a bigger one and yeah, it's the largest bomb that was ever used by the Royal Air Force in the Second World War Wow. Uh, and yeah, it was dropped in the New Forest first and then the following day, it was dropped in Bielefeld, where I used to live in Germany. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and knocked out the viaduct there, which was a target that the RAF had been trying to knock out for months mm. with conventional bombs, but the Grand Slam earthquake bomb uh, destroyed it in a, a totally different way, but through the vibrations of the shockwave mm. of the explosion, it just caused it to collapse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, an, another fantastic site. It's a great shame that that crater was filled in, because I think as a a site now, it would be absolutely fantastic and quite dangerous. Treacherous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's another 10 ponies stuck down Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. But seeing a crater that big would be, you know, absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, 
it's probably just as well that it has been filmed <laughs> yeah. in Burton the same. Mm. You and Steve covered a lot of stuff there already. Yes. Um, we're only halfway through the interview. <laughs> um, really interesting. And just touching on the, the bits at the end there, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be aware of that side of archaeology in that when 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 folks think about archaeology, they think about prehistory, maybe they think about the Romans, maybe the medieval. But the Second World War t- tends to be the purview of history. It tends to, to be on the side of looking at history books. We, we've almost got living memory of it. Um, certainly our grandparents would have told us stories about it. But the archaeology of the Second World War sounds fascinating from that conversation. I have a real split love for Second World War archaeology for the exact reasons you just mentioned in that it's history but it's tangible heritage and every year that passes it becomes more and more important more and more relevant more and more poignant and in certain places across the UK we see these sites being removed or not protected and granted in the 1980s maybe 1990s that's kind of understandable because mm, it's, it's behind it's, you a little bit exactly yeah. or but it's just it's, it's it was more recent mm. but as i say we we every year that passes we've, we've we're well past 75 years of d-day um and and these lumps of concrete that are just foundations i mean the, the new forest is just full of little bits of concrete here there and everywhere that represent a certain bit of our history and this this mammoth event in world history it's true, and our our grandparents' generation had obviously a direct link to that period. Our parents had a very tangible relationship to to that period, and we did to a point as well. But our the next generation, my my children's generation, won't have been brought up with the same stories that we were brought up with in that same same environment of kind of living memory. So it it's important, I think, to to think about the materiality or the material manifestations of the Second World War and what's left of that to really give an impression to future generations of what this period was like. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, people like Steve who are doing these recording projects, these mapping projects, um, whether the sites are lost or not, we have some really in-depth records. And I think Steve will come on to talk about these the, the, the archives, which provide us a really good insight into to how things were done and but it's for people to start putting those together now and make sure there is a longevity and a good mm. record of what's going on. And there. accessible as well, making that's it something it. that can be absolutely experienced, not mm. experienced, but, but spaces can be experienced. Mm. Something else that was incredibly intriguing about that interview was the way that Steve got into archaeology yes. and got, came to Heritage. It's, I mean, as someone that works in a university and kind of, regularly trains up the next generation of archaeologists it's really nice to hear of different route ways into the profession and that was something that was particularly interesting I absolutely think. and volunteering as well they played a huge part in his his pro- progression through his career and opportunities and training that a national organization the national trust have, have provided him with and the chance meeting of these archaeologists so yeah we, we, we know, of our we colleagues, know both yeah. of those, those two characters quite well um, but uh, the role that community archaeology and um, public archaeology plays, certainly in this day and age, is vital, I think. And whether it's just sparking a bit of imagination 
or engagement or making appreci people appreciate their their local heritage a bit more or in Steve's case which is probably quite an extreme case actually shaping his career yeah for years taking a full-on career shift in a way and it's hard to imagine thinking of other disciplines other subjects of someone wandering past an aerospace laboratory and saying <laughs> oh, I'm really intrigued can I come in and, and help and build a plane or a spaceship it, it's it's something I think quite unique to our discipline and I, I don't think I, I know I know that the, the colleagues, Kate, um, that you mentioned uh, in your interview there, are very open people and would be very open to that, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's an exception in our subject. No. I think almost any site you walk up to, if you're interested and you care what people are up to and wanted to know a bit more, they'd welcome you with open arms. And I think that's something very unique about heritage and archaeology. I think that's one of the things I'm most, most proud about our discipline in general is that we are the harbingers of truth. We, we can write the history books in some occasions when we look at prehistory and things like that. But we share it and we're engaged. And I, I think in the last 10 to 15 years, that's only increased and got better. It's not, It perhaps might have been quite a stuffy um, profession back in the day. Some tweed bow tie type. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, I mean, you, you look back at the pictures and they had Joe Blogs digging the holes for them and they yeah, were telling them what yeah. they'd found. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's... Steve's case in point for this, but the power yeah. that we, we we have as a... We we serve at the public's discretion, really, don't we? If they don't want to know what happened in the past, there's no point to doing what we're doing, in a way. So it, it, it gives us the, a reason to do it, and, it, and we should be sharing that as, as much as possible. Absolutely. Just part of the rationale for this podcast, really, <laughs> yes. to, to kind of share, share some of our interesting stories. Uh, throughout that part of the interview, something else that was quite apparent is the range of projects and activities that are going on at any one time. I mean, you touched on two or three there. And the big one, obviously, is the Stonehenge Riverside project. Yes. And you and I only met a few years ago, but we worked on the Stonehenge Riverside project independently of mm -hmm. each other at any various one time. And many people, actually, particularly in the south of England, have worked on that project. I don't think just south. I think it was a Sheffield, yeah, Manchester Sheffield was project. there, Manchester hundreds was there. Hundreds and hundreds yeah. of archaeologists have worked so on that project. Lots of people now working in the profession, working in academia, working in various um, heritage industries, went through that project yes. as one of their first experiences of archaeology, mm. which is massive. So could you tell us just a little bit more about what that project was or is? Well, I, I'm fortunate in that I spent two years doing field seasons and then I helped develop the Google Scene Beneath Stonehenge project, which was where they have made all the spatial data that was collected as part of the Stonehenge Riverside project available online. So you can still download that. That's still accessible. Videos, yeah, absolutely. 3D models, trench plans, photographs, trench descriptions, geophysics plots. And it was quite a unique project at the time. Um, and But that sort of gave me an idea of the whole timeline. So as I mentioned, I think it started in 2004 with this, 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 this sort of initial concept between Colin Richards and Mike Parker Pearson and a few others going to Durrington Walls and thinking, right, let's have a proper look at this landscape. And um, they brought in people like Kate Wellham, who Steve mentions, did geophysical surveys to help inform their understanding and their approach to the scientific questions and the research questions. And it just grew and grew. I mean, absolutely bananas. When I came in in 2008, they were, I, I can't remember how many trenches were open, but there were trenches in... At, the end of the avenue, what's now Blue Stonehenge, there are trenches on the avenue, there are trenches on the Curses, there was trenches on the Curses Barrow, there are trenches in Stonehenge itself on the Albury Hole to excavate um, human remains that have been placed there. Um, there were uh, 
trenches on the palisade, geophysics taking place absolutely everywhere, um, academics from so many, so many different institutes, um, whether it's Bristol, um, Bournemouth, Manchester, Birmingham, all, all these <laughs> other ones in between. But just the perfect example of cross discipline working and the answers that they are the discoveries and answers they got were just brilliant out of curiosity what years were you there i was there in 2008 and 2009 and both of which were there in volunteer voluntary states much like steve um in 2009 i was unemployed or just leaving a, a pub job so um it was just after that recession so it was pretty hard to get a job at the time but both experiences helped me to get my job that I'm in today, I'd, I'd argue. What's interesting about that is we didn't know each other at the time, but in my previous life as a post-excavation consultant, I was busily analysing the soils from some of the excavations you mentioned at the same time you were out <laughs> working on the site. So okay. I was in a lab in Sheffield analysing soil chemistry and you were in the field on the same project before we'd ever met. Taking 3D points where the soils were coming from. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Right, so should we hear a little bit more from Steve? Yeah, let's. There's loads more cool things to hear, so let's go. Over the years of doing your own research or seeing things that have come up in the news or, or, or things like the Stone Henry Riverside project that you've engaged with, is there any one project or one individual research output discovery? That you've seen that you've, you've been quite envious of something you thought oh that's that's groundbreaking or, or i wish i'd found that um a few years ago uh the united kingdom hydrographic office uh under chris howlett did a massive um seabed survey mm -hmm. in Normandy, and they mapped all of the wrecks all of the remains of mulberry harbour mm -hmm. um fantastic site scan sonar survey of the entire seascape mm -hmm. and that is a, a fantastic piece of research i don't feel it gets enough um recognition okay for how useful that is as an archaeological resource because there are still dozens of shipwrecks bits of mulberry the swimming tanks the dd tanks oh, that yeah. swam into mm -hmm. normandy at the very start of the invasion they've mapped some of those the ones that sank yeah okay um it's a fantastic resource oh, and that's it would amazing. have been you know this is it slightly predates my level of involvement with Normandy work. I think actually I was doing the New Forest Remembers project at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it would have been fantastic to have been involved in yeah, that. Yeah, like, and that's, that's an open resource for research, is it? Uh, yes, uh, it's obtainable and you know, the, the information is out there. Mm. Uh, and I think you only need to Google it on the United Kingdom Hydrographic Office site to mm -hmm. find almost all of the information. Um, so it's a very useful resource, mm. but probably one that hasn't been used to its full potential. Yeah, uh, it's one of those ideas that's, that's someone's brainchild and mm. they've ran with it and they've got the funding and they've delivered it and it's now just this amazingly rich resource that yeah. people can turn to. So yeah, good choice. I think actually it was, it was a training exercise oh, right. for UKHO, but they couldn't do it within UK territorial waters because it would have to be a valid data set. So mm. in order to train hydrographers, they did it outside of UK waters mm -hmm. and used Normandy as a, a case study. I think that's possible. There's probably more detail than that. But um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating how it came about. 
and it's really useful data. That sounds like a great choice, actually. Okay, so the final question I've got for you is um, Derek and I have been working uh, for a little while now on building a time machine. We've actually created one. (laughs) It works. Um, Selected guests are offered up a return ticket to a time and location of their choice. Um, So... Congratulations! Here, here's your ticket. You can take that. Fantastic. Handwritten. Where are you going? What are you going to do? What are you going to see? I've been asked this before. Or, you know, oh, line, lines along the similar point. And um, I remember I was interviewed by Countryfile when I was at Stonehenge of the National Trust, and they said, "Do you think we'll ever find out what Stonehenge was for?" I said, the only way we'll ever find out is if we invent a time machine and go back. Mm-hmm. And yes, part of me would love to go back to Stonehenge and establish exactly what the monument is for. Well, okay. that, that is, however, a pointless task because we know that Stonehenge was developed over the course of 1,500 years. Uh, it leads me to my next question. Um, Multi-phase. Yeah, that's um, it. I, when, when would you go back to you tell Stonehenge? Me. And that's the problem with a lot of history because it's always multi-phased and it's one of the problems that restorers have to come up with when you do a restoration of a, a, a location or a vessel, as the National Museum of the Royal Navy do. They've, they've had things like HMS Caroline. What point in time do you restore a vessel to? And what point in time would you restore a monument to if mm-hmm. you were to restore a monument? Because they're so often multi-phased, and that's the problem with Stonehenge. You have the initial work that may have taken place in around 3000 BC, and then probably the main area of focus, which is 2500 BC. Um, but yeah, I can't pick a moment in time and no. say, that's the bit I want to go back to because that will answer the question because we don't know. No, well, and that, that's such a broad is. period between just those mm. two sections. Yeah. If we're not even considering the Bronze Age, which obviously there's a huge amount of activity around the area yeah, at that yeah. time. What, what, what is the perception of that monument in those particular times? Yeah, could be exactly. completely different to, from when it was initially... If Mike Parker Pearson's theory is right that the sarsen stones and then the blue stones were erected within a period of possibly as little as 20 years, mm-hmm. then that would suggest that there is one train of thought continuing about how the monument would be developed and built. Although even then, you know, 20 years, I'm 40 now, and if I think back to myself 20 years ago, that's a phenomenal period of time that's passed. Mm. And I can look back at photographs and remind myself of what I did 20 years ago and what I wanted to do and and all of these different things. You didn't have that option in 2500 BC. And I don't think that it's necessarily the case that there was always a constant train of thought about what Stonehenge was going to be. So 20 years prior, people had said, we will create it this way and they will be arranged like this. It's not necessarily the case that for the next 20 years, everyone then followed that exact plan because the only way they could pass that plan on to mm-hmm. other people is through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And when you tablets were very different devices. And the, <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if they used any at all, it was chalk carvings. And some chalk carvings have emerged from Stonehenge landscape, but none of them show any signs of a, a form of communication. That seems well, to be well interesting, we, we, we were meeting with... Um, Christian Horn recently and talking to him on a similar level and he, he looks at Bronze Age um, car, um, rock carvings mm-hmm. in, um, in, in Sweden and um, 
we we sort of touched on this this idea. <laughs> what what actually is a carving? What carving is it? An mm. accurate representation of what they they perceive and see, or is it just a some form of comic book strip <laughs> or something like <laughs> that? So, yeah. yeah. So I feel we're digressing. So so. Um, you got to choose one, then. That, that ticket can't take you to multiple. Yeah, times. so that's the problem, and that's why Stonehenge would be ideal in many ways, but also it's impossible because I don't think there is a set point in time that anyone can go back to no. and say this will give us the answer to what Stonehenge was built for, because I think that changed over the course of its construction. Mm. Um, it certainly did between three thousand BC and two thousand five hundred BC, without mm-hmm. question. It mm-hmm. must have had different. Uh, motivations for those different phases because they are separated by dozens of generations but even in that narrow point of time of 2500 BC I I still don't think we can definitively pick a point in time and say these people decided what Stonehenge Mm. would be because I think even during its construction they were probably changing their minds so, uh, so I'm just done. I'm waiting to type in the numbers. Where yeah, yeah, so um, else, then, we, yeah. we might have to go back to somewhere like the Second World War, okay. and one of the great mysteries of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even then, that's difficult because I don't really want to get killed when I'm back in time. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt in that you, you're untouchable out there because we don't have okay. cause. Yeah. Right. We've had issues with space-time paradoxes and all these other things. So um, <laughs> we're, we're keeping fairly flexible with the rules. Right, okay. Um, hmm. That still doesn't make it any easier. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, that's the trouble with history. Even though my main areas of history are separated by all of British recorded history, I'm fascinated by prehistory and then military history, which is pretty much the 20th century. There's still so many things I'd like to to see and know about and answer from all the periods in between. And that makes it really difficult. I mean, it'd be fascinating to know, for instance, was Harold killed by an arrow in the eye? Mm-hmm. It'd be fantastic to know, but I guess I can only go back to one date. So, I think, hmm, no, I don't know. Oh. These are really difficult questions. (laughs) Good, good. Um, uh, See, the thing is, with the Second World War, there's very few mysteries that need to be solved. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's things that aren't known, but through good research, it's possible to establish levels of detail. I mean, this ticket might just save you a bit of effort going to the archives. That's true, it might, mightn't it? I mean... I suppose, given that my current piece of research is for the National Museum of the Royal Navy and I'm researching the landing craft tank that they're restoring in Portsmouth, which will go on display outside the the D-Day story Mm -hmm. in South Sea next year, that's landing craft tank 7074. This was a big one that could carry 10 tanks. Mm. Um, And I've been voluntarily researching it for them for a couple of years and they've recently uh, asked me to do a report, uh, so I've got a short contract with them to do this, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. But I, I've uncovered a lot of interesting links that are going to be coming out soon um, about this landing craft and the tanks that were on it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's not just any old landing craft, it's one that has lots of links to D-Day and other elements of D-Day that people will find quite surprising. So I'll, I'll give you a sneak preview. Uh, it's tanks were at the Battle of Villers-Bocage. Oh, wow. Which might not mean much to everyone, but the Battle of Villers-Bocage is a very famous battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the 
the advance by the 7th Armoured Division was blunted pretty much by one man, a German tank ace called Michael Whitman. And there's a lot of myth that's built up about this battle and, and a lot of people uh, incorrectly assume that Michael Whitman knocked out an entire armoured division, which isn't quite the case. But nonetheless, he, he had a very successful time knocking out several British tanks. Some of those tanks were on landing craft tanks 7074. Oh, wow. And some of them are very well photographed. And nobody had made this connection before. And it was, I'll brag a little and say it was me who spotted that these tanks were there. So I guess actually, I'd be quite interested in seeing that firsthand. How, how, how much of an AC was. Yeah. Uh, and already I've got differing accounts as to how some of the tanks were knocked out. Okay. And these aren't accounts that can be resolved and there is no more physical evidence within the archives that will answer those oh. specifics. Um, so that is the sort of thing that it would be fascinating to get. Yeah, well, that definitive like great choice. Answer on. Yeah. So I might, yeah, I might have to go back and, and watch that battle. As morbid as it is, it's, it's fascinating to see a crucial event that is connected to the history of this vessel I'm researching mm -hmm. and how it actually played out on the ground. Well, I think um, I'm going to have to come read up on that now. <laughs> well, very soon there'll be lots of information coming out. So. Oh, fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing all that. Mm. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. And, um, You're welcome. Uh, and uh, good luck with the rest of your research. That was that was fun. That was fun. I enjoyed that. What our what our listeners won't know is just how much of that we cut out, <laughs> particularly how much indecision. Steve was finding it incredibly you hard. Give someone a time machine. <laughs> I I think I'd find it incredibly hard to choose where to go. Uh, Do you not want to go back to build a bit? I mean, any I know day, how much any you really day enjoyed week. that. I'd, I'd, I'd live that moment again and again, like Groundhog Day. Why not? Why not? But it's true. It would be incredibly hard for any of us, I think, to pick one point, and that's the joy of that question, mm. I think. But in the end, Steve chose to go back to a very singular event, almost a mm. single battle, a single point in history, and it's quite nice having the time machine for this because it it seems to allow everyone that's used it so far to flesh out something that they're researching so they they have documents they have archives but to actually put the life back into it and see that life happening it's it's that's probably the, the joy of having a time machine I that's think. it and there are so many un, unanswered questions within our discipline that we have educated guesses and we can inform our understanding based on artifacts or things that we identify or our experiences of builder bear help inform our <laughs> interpretation of something but by being able to go and find out that the exact detail. There's always going to be a question mark. We never got a perfect story, even in a time period where we have probably the best records. It's, it's fair to say that in 75 years' time, we'll still probably have a very good record of Builder Bears and their locations <laughs> and the layout of the stores for I architectural plans. You could excavate an old builder there, but you'd never get an impression of the kind of ritual madness <laughs> <laughs> that occurs in those places. One, one last thing to, to touch on with that interview, because, it, again, it, it covered so much. Uh, Steve mentioned before, before the Time Machine conversation about how, how he's been envious of this resource, this, this side-scanning sonar. Mm. Um, 
archive really of material of data that's available to be used and I know you've got a lot of experience yourself working in in data that is not necessarily captured for us but is very useful to us and there's a huge wealth of material available. Well the Environment Agency LiDAR data for example is a perfect sort of alternative to that but yeah it initially recorded for flood mapping. Yeah so these, these data sets that someone else has captured have been incredibly useful to archaeologists but there's 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 so much data there's almost too much data isn't there well what's too much data? <laughs> no i know what you mean um and but it's, it's there and you can you can cherry pick it for individual research projects and we've seen with the as i know i've already mentioned it but the the environment agency data is completely changing the way uh, either local community groups or national bodies or independent researchers as part of universities are our understanding landscapes and as more and more data becomes available our our knowledge and understanding of archaeology is only only going to get richer and that, and that data is there to be used as well and That's I, it. even with my first year students i send them off to a one of the lidar repositories online and they can have a play with it and a look and it really lends itself to almost a citizen science type approach mm -hmm. and it really just throwing yourself into heritage it's not necessarily something that's reserved for professionals mm. yeah there's a bit of a learning curve perhaps in the beginning but actually it's a it's a data set that anyone can access and with just a little bit of knowledge you can go and use and Loads discover of things. youtube training videos out there as well qgis an absolute beauty it's free we'll put some links in the uh, <laughs> in the description Absolutely. But, uh, I've really enjoyed this week's podcast. Yeah, I, I think we've we've covered a range of topics. <laughs> He's fascinating. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy to interview. Um, but next week, we're obviously going to interview, interview another a professional. Yeah, so tune in for more. That's it. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on our... We've got our website with all our previous recordings. Uh, we have a Facebook page, but we don't use it too much. But check it out anyway. <laughs> And um, keep posted. Make sure you sign up, you subscribe, and you leave comments as well. About yeah, them. if you've got any questions or comments, we'll try and respond to them as best we can, either online or in the podcast themselves. That's it. Thank you for listening. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to the Career in Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from make sure you comment do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media we're on twitter we're on instagram we also have a facebook page and uh, we'll, we'll look to try and to reply to as many questions as we can hopefully in the podcast as well and sound production on this episode has been done by guy from bucketofsound.com